You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Adrian Frost and Laura Geiser. This month, we're reading Beyond Behaviors by Dr. Mona Delahook. Let's get into it. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the SLP Book Club. We're excited to bring Chapter 2 of Beyond Behaviors by Dr. Mona Delahook to you today. But first, we have some burning questions for each other. So stay tuned. We're going to chat a little bit and then we'll get into the chapter. Okay, Adrian, I'm going to start because I have a question that you're not going to find on our list. This is something that has been bugging me. I just have to know. Oh my God. Now, you know, I run our Instagram and interact with different people, but there is one person in particular, your dad, (laughs) who I have got to know why his Instagram handle is flashlight guy. Don't answer me yet. Just hold off for a second, because I have two theories, two options that I've come up with in my head, and I like both of them. First, he works for a company or manufactures flashlights, so he is the flashlight guy. Or the second option, which I like even better, is that he is a man who is passionate about flashlights, like he's just really into them, and he wants the world to know I'm flashlight guy. Okay. So <laughs> if this question is too personal, don't worry. You don't have to answer. We can just switch to our list of questions. But I'm dying to know, and I'm sure everyone else is. Um, no, it's not. I don't want to talk about this on the podcast. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it is the second option. He is a flashlight enthusiast. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that's what I was hoping for. Um, I'm not sure why. <laughs> uh, maybe he'll get some new followers out of this. Actually, hopefully, don't do that, anyone. <laughs> You're not going to be interested in that content. I guarantee. Um, <laughs> yeah, so he's like loves a headlamp, really into a flashlight. When I started living alone, I was like, okay, I can't have like a weapon in the house. Like if there's an intruder into my home. I'm not going to be able to like whip out a gun or something like what? That's a joke. So I'm like, I think what I need is like a really bright flashlight where I can just like blind someone really quickly. And then when they're stunned, I can like (laughs) figure something out. I don't know. Grab a bat. I don't know. So, you know, of course I go to him. I'm like, dad, you know, I need a, a really bright flashlight for like home protection. And, you know, he came at me. He had several options, different price points, quality. You know, he's... He's an expert. Love that. He has several niche interests. Um, One is weather. Oh. He's also weather guy. Okay. When we had that hurricane or tropical storm or whatever was happening. Oh, yeah. Last, last weekend. uh, You know, I called him. I'm like, dad, weather guy, how much are you watching the Doppler? Like, how much should I be freaking out? He's like, not a big deal. And I was like, all right, I trust you. Yeah. He knows his stuff. Okay. Yep. Okay. So this is just the great thing about dads. And I think that every dad needs to be into niche hobbies. Uh, For my dad, it's fly fishing. Not only does he enjoy fly fishing, but he likes to make his flies with, (laughs) with a lot of very specialized tiny equipment. And he also enjoys bird watching. Oh. So... That's just 
part of being a dad, I think, is having these really, really interesting hobbies. Okay, yes. (laughs) Okay, so what question do you have for me? All right, Laura, so I'm going to do this or that. And my question for you is swimming or sunbathing. This is because I was in Palm Springs this weekend. It was very hot, 114 degrees, but amazing nonetheless. (laughs) Okay, so if I can only choose one when it's really hot, I think I'm going to say swimming, especially if there's floaties, a raft, something like that, where you can be laying out in the pool, though, and getting cooled off by the water. Yeah, so ideally you would do both. To me, it's totally agonizing just laying in the sun sweating unless you can dip in the pool and cool off. You know, I like to have both. So my answer is both, but like I'm going to choose swimming over just laying in the sun 100%. Okay, and then the other thing is, you know, I am very close to 40 years old and I no longer just want to sit lying in the sun, frying like a little piece of bacon. I'm trying my best to protect my skin. Sure. We're not in our early 20s anymore. (laughs) So you're not going to find me just laying around. If I'm tan, it's because I was outside doing something, you know? Yeah. But do I have a bottle of Banana Boat uh, SPF 5 tanning oil? Yes, I do. I do still have that. And sometimes I do spray it on, but not necessarily because I want to tan. It just makes you look so good. It makes you so shiny and beautiful. Five (laughs) SPF. What a joke. You're like, okay, we'll throw you a bow. Five. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So this is like how it goes is when it is so hot. I love Palm Springs in the summer because you get the best deal. And we got like a screaming deal. We were at the Ace Sorry to go on a tangent, but it is not my preferred Palm Springs Hotel. My preferred Palm Springs Hotel is Holiday House, which is amazing. But they are renovating their pool right now. So they were closed for three weeks. So I was forced to go to the Ace, (laughs) which is a hotel I used to go to more often. And it's a party hotel. So the thing is, is like the room, I bought it like third party through Hotwire, like secret deal. All of the hotels that I love, I can recognize Okay, because on Hotwire, they're like, here's our secret hotel. You don't know which one you're going to get. But this is a picture of the actual room. Yeah. And like, I know what the rooms look like because I've stayed there. So I'm like, oh, that's the ace. Mm -hmm. So I got a room, a basic room for $105 a night. Amazing. And then when we were there, I asked to upgrade to a room with a patio and it was only $50 more. Ooh. I was like... Yes. And then when you get the patio, you have like a private space, a couch out there, a fireplace. What? And it's just, it's much nicer. So anyway, I was very proud of the deal. (laughs) (laughs) But it is like a kind of rowdy hotel. And so when it's so hot, you basically Mm -hmm. either need to be inside in the air conditioning or in the pool. Like there's no option. Yeah. And I there was a moment in the pool where I do feel like I saw my shoulders tanning in front of my eyes, like in real time. Yeah. <laughs> like over the course of five minutes, I was like, whoa, was it always that tan? Like what? <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> At the hotel, they have a really big pool that's like the party pool with the DJ. And, you know, there's like 50 people in it. And the first time that I went in, I was a little buzzed. So I was like, wee, this is mm-hmm. fun. But the second time I went in, I was sober and I was like, what's happening with the water? 
It was disturbing. <laughs> it was so murky. You could not really see the oh bottom. <laughs> there was like things float. Because, you know, everyone's just so drunk. Yeah. And like, I think a lot of it is sunscreen. Yeah. Because here's the thing about my dad. My dad is pool, swimming pool maintenance guy. Okay. So I'm like, call him. I'm like, dad, what's going on? He's like, oh, it's all the body oils and sunscreen. Ugh sloughing off people and then i'm like i'm just swimming around in your body oil like and then <laughs> i see some guy come by and he's like rinsing his crocs in the pool that is so gross it's <laughs> <laughs> like you people are disgusting like i can't so they have a second smaller pool where there's rarely more than like 10 mm -hmm. people in it and so that was the pool i was at most because it was just calm nobody was threatening that they were gonna like puke in the pool yeah Anyway, wild times. <laughs> wow. Okay, well, I haven't been to the Ace in about 11 years, but I used to go all the time. The Ace in Palm Springs. Yeah, yeah, it was so fun. Oh, yeah. Well, it's the same. Yeah. Same vibe. A little worse for wear. Yeah. <laughs> so here's my question for you, Laura. Do you prefer, because I was like reflecting, the Ace is fun. You can socialize. It's like for partying. But Holiday House, my more preferred hotel is like, you know, the ACE is where you go in there in your 20s and Holiday House is for your 30s. There are no kids allowed. At the Holiday House? <laughs> At Holiday House. Okay. So it's like relaxing. It's boutique. It's smaller. Mm -hmm. You know, the population skews older. The pool is calm. They're playing music, but it's not like, mm, mm, it's like dance music. It's more like jazz. <laughs> 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 so it's like, which do you prefer if you had to choose? Okay, so I think at this stage in my life, I am going to want to stay at the Holiday House. Yeah. But, man, do I love to get a little rowdy sometimes. I know that's a little yeah. bit. I know. <laughs> I know. Yeah, so I think what you want to do is you stay at the Holiday House. That's your refuge. But then you get a day pass to the, pool. to the Ace Hotel, to the pool. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, maybe not the Ace because we just heard how disgusting their pool is. So it's, somewhere fun. I know. It's a toss up. Okay. Actually, I do have a good question for you. It's not exactly the way it's written here. But if a friend needed a favor from you, they needed you to come and watch their blank for four hours. The question is dogs or babies, which do you yeah. like? But I'm saying if you have to go to a friend's house and watch one for four hours, would you rather it be their human baby <laughs> or a puppy? <laughs> Truthfully, the puppy. Babies, it takes a lot of energy. I mean, I will, and it's fun to hold them. But, you know, four out, one hour. Yeah, that's why I said four hours. <laughs> yeah, one hour, sure. We can hang out the whole day if there's multiple hands on deck. You know, I like that. No, it's just you. But um, the puppy is cute. The puppy gets tired out. Maybe the puppy's yeah. sleeping. He can kind of like, I don't know. It's the puppy for me. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. For you too, huh? <laughs> of course it is. I mean, maybe if somebody called and said, can you watch my baby during their nap time? Unexpected things can happen. That's true. Okay, so I think the consensus here is that we would rather watch a puppy. <laughs> No babies. <laughs> All right, everyone. Thanks for hanging around while we got to know each other better and Adrian's dad a little bit better. Stick around after a quick break. We'll be back to discuss chapter two of Beyond Behaviors. I want to tell you about Tiny Talkers group curriculum. If you're an SLP looking for more work-life balance and a fresh way to do things in your private practice, 
then the Tiny Talkers group curriculum might be just what you're looking for. Tiny Talkers groups are set up as a way to provide accessible speech and language support to young children in a small group setting. Our friend Megan Samuels, creator of Tiny Talkers, has done all the planning for you. When you sign up for the curriculum, you get a full 36-week program divided into summer, fall, winter, and spring semesters. The plans are easy to implement and adjust as needed to meet the needs of your clients. They include material checklists and parent handouts for each session. And the best part is, Megan designed each week so that all the materials you'll need can fit into one sensory bin. So once you get your group set up, you're done. In the years that follow, you'll pull out that bin and go. No planning, no stress, just fun. If you want to learn more about Tiny Talkers, go to tinytalkersgroupcurriculum.com to check it out. Make sure to use our code BOOKCLUB10 at checkout to get 10% off your order. We love Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum, and we know you'll love it too. Have you checked out Laura's speech materials yet on Teachers Pay Teachers or Boom Learning under Laura G. SLP? I am such a huge fan and I'm here to sing her praises. <laughs> Since I'm a teletherapist, I use Boom cards almost exclusively during my sessions. As with all things in speech, sometimes the most unexpected materials are a hit with the kiddos. My students love Laura's What Did You Find activities that feature a fun flashlight to look for different items. And her Lidcomb handouts for parents on TPT are also amazing, and I love to use them with private clients. She also has some great game type reinforcers like the picture reveal activities and a Connect Four donut game that I've been playing on repeat with one student for months. <laughs> the best part is that I can use almost all of her materials with a range of kids who have different levels of needs. This helps you get the most bang for your buck. Her materials are well thought out, evidence-based, and fun and engaging for the kids. We can't all be creative geniuses, so we might as well support and benefit from those who are. Thanks for sharing your genius with us, Laura. Go check them out today at Laura G. SLP on Boom Learning and TPT. Okay, everyone. So we're back and we're going to get into chapter two of Beyond Behaviors. So this chapter helps us to understand top-down and bottom-up behavior. And it really emphasizes that before we respond to behavior, we need to understand the root cause. It opens up with a story about a kindergartner named Ronaldo, and it became clear to everybody that he was having a hard time with behavior when they noticed him grabbing toys and objects from others and hitting his peers. So when it came time to draft his IEP, they wrote a pretty standard goal that I personally have seen before, saying something like he will use his words or tell others what he needs and how he is feeling instead of using physical behaviors. And the problem is, is that the goal didn't work, even though he tried really hard to comply, it just wasn't happening. And every year, the IEP team just kind of like kicked the goal down the field, which I have also seen happen goals that get continued for three years or more. And you're just like hoping next year, it'll really click, but nobody's really doing anything differently. And they never even asked, like, why isn't Ronaldo able to use his words instead of acting out impulsively? And the simple answer to the question is that Ronaldo hadn't developed the skills necessary to use his words in order to represent sensations or ideas or feelings in his body. So that's something that develops differently in all children. And Ronaldo just wasn't there yet, just hadn't happened. So well-intentioned goals often don't work for children with behavioral difficulties because they're not customized to the child's social and emotional development. And when we encounter challenging behaviors in a child, the first question to ask 
is if the behavior's etiology is top down or bottom up. So is this purposeful, intentional behavior, or does it represent the child's developmental challenges or reflexive responses to a perceived threat? Or could it maybe be both? So Dr. Delahook says that as she began to use the polyvagal theory more in her psychology practice, she found that the strategies she designed based on a child's neuroception were way more effective than those that she was taught in grad school. And those that schools and other agencies were and honestly still are using to manage children's challenging behaviors. So if we want to answer the question of if a behavior is top down or bottom up, we need to figure out two things about the child. The first is that we need to understand the child's social emotional development. And the second is that we need to be able to read a child's cues in the moment that will help reveal what underlies the specific behavior. So top-down behaviors are a result of thoughtful intent, and they represent somebody's willful ability to take a certain action. So like in the whole brain child, they call this the upstairs brain, and most children begin to have effortful control of their attention, their impulses, their behaviors by three and a half to four years old. But it can take many more years for that to develop fully, and the process can even continue into early adulthood. So brain growth that is supported by nurturing and attentive relationships allows us to develop control, learn, reflect, plan, and pursue long-term goals. But it can take a while for that to develop. Bottom-up behaviors are subconscious and do not involve conscious thought. So the subconscious perception of safety and threat underlies these behaviors, which emerge from that instinctive drive towards self-protection. So in the whole brain child, this is called the downstairs brain. And making incorrect assumptions about the root of behavior can lead to ineffective ways that we try to respond to them. And that's why it's really important to figure out if we're witnessing a top-down behavior or a bottom-up behavior. And it's helpful to think about the way that social-emotional development occurs in babies. And we're going to really dig into this in the next few moments coming up. We go really in deep. But once a baby is born, one of the first skills that they learn is regulation and attention. So this falls into place if her needs are properly met by a caring and attentive caregiver, which allows the baby to experience a sense of calm, alert attention to the world around her. So you can think of a baby like a newborn that's really like calm and looking around and kind of taking things in. The next process of development is engagement, which comes from feelings of safety sensed deep within the body and the brain. So engagement and connection emerge out of a physiologically regulated system between baby and caregiver. The third process is like when you witness a baby smile and the mom smile back. So this is social and emotional development, which is the ability to communicate in a back and forth way. The next point of social emotional development is shared social problem solving. So this can be accomplished through facial and body gestures and emotion-driven behaviors. A good example of this might be a baby pointing at something before they have verbal speech. They are using their body gestures to communicate, but without the use of words. And after that comes the use of words or symbols. And this replaces the need to have to ask, tell, show, and direct others without spoken language. So obviously it's so much easier to just use words. And once that develops further, the child will be able to describe her feelings and her internal life and share her experiences with others. And then that skill leads to another pinnacle of human development, which is building bridges with other people. And this involves learning to empathize with others as well as concepts like theory of mind. 
So throughout these dynamic processes, children eventually develop the ability to control their impulses, emotions, and behaviors. And the ability to do this or to talk about their needs, their internal life, their struggles, their fears, their emotions, without having to act on them behaviorally is something that continues to develop over adolescence and even into young adulthood. And the way that this process develops varies between one person and another and honestly is really dependent on the child's relationships, experiences, early environment, constitution, and their specific brain wiring. So that series of capabilities for social emotional development are known as functional emotional developmental levels, F-E-D-L. So functional refers to how the individual takes in the world and comprehends it. Emotional is the role of feelings that each level and the way that those feelings alter the meaning and understanding of experiences. Developmental indicates the pattern of growth through the milestones. And the levels are the experiences necessary for social emotional maturity at various phases as adults grow. So these levels are now known as processes because it's good to acknowledge that these are nonlinear and can shift depending on many variables. So when we think levels, that makes it seem like it's just like stepping up, but processes sort of acknowledges that it's more fluid. All children develop at different rates, and many children may not fit neatly into these specific descriptions of social-emotional development. However, they can serve as useful for pointing us in the right direction when we're trying to understand and support a child's behavioral challenges. It can be helpful to think of each distinct phase of social-emotional development as building a house, where each phase contributes to the final structure. So this is a long metaphor, but I like it because it really helped me to understand. You know, I don't know if you liked it too, Laura, but the visual was there for me. Yes, I loved it. And you know what else I love is that it always seems like our books from one month to the next, they just link together. So last yes. month, we had Lisa Murphy, oh who we know was so passionate about this house metaphor, that play is the foundation of learning. And if you don't have a strong foundation, that whole house is going to crumble. And here again, we have someone using the metaphor of a house and slowly building up from the foundation. But this one is a little more intricate. It goes deep. Yes, it goes very deep. And it helps. I felt I was like, oh, I understand this, you know. Okay, so this applies to the process of human development where each phase contributes towards how the child develops, increasing abilities for emotional regulation and being able to intentionally control their own behavior. So just like building a house, there are often some circumstances and factors that arise that make each building process unique. Like sometimes there's a supply shortage, so something has to be done first that might not necessarily have been done first if the supplies were available. Or maybe a worker shortage could cause certain things to have been done before other things. So in the same way, each child encounters the same developmental process, but they are also influenced by many other processes. And this is relevant to our understanding of how to respond to children's behavior because the reasons for the challenging behaviors often decrease when we are properly addressing the child's physiological and emotional needs. So when we understand more about the child's emotional development, we can focus more on helping them regulate their emotional state instead of just focusing on behavior management. So now we're going to really dig into these six stages of building the house. The foundation of the house or process number one is regulation and attention. And I thought this was also tying in really well with seeds of learning. Yeah. Right, Laura, because it's like, okay, 
we know how important attention is. It's really the basis for everything. And so we can think of it as the foundation. When the child gains the ability to be calm and alert, this comes into place. So if a child has a strong foundation of calm attention to the world and the people around them, then they'll have a strong base for all future development. And this could look like a child who's calm, alert, has a regulated physiological state, has the ability to attend to the relational and physical environment, and neuroception of safety. The next process is framing the house, and this is engagement and relating. So the frame defines all that the house will contain, and without it, the rest of the house can't be built. So this is experiencing and engaging in warmly connected relationships. And it looks like engaging with others, smiling, noticing, looking, laughing, mutual enjoyment and pleasure, and other signs of connection that are related to each child's individual differences. The third process is the electrical wiring or purposeful emotional interactions. So if the capacity for engaged loving relationships symbolizes the house's framing, then you can think of communication as the electrical wiring for the house. So gestures, facial expressions, and body posture allow communication to flow between people. And this could look like rhythm and flow, back and forth communication, reading each other's body language and gestures, and giving and receiving verbal or nonverbal signals. The fourth process is the rooms of the house or shared social problem solving. So once the child has two-way flow of communication that was developed in the previous process, they can now explore all the rooms in the house through social problem solving. And this is where the child uses a variety of back and forth interactions to show, tell, ask, or otherwise communicate with others. And this can look like communicating non-verbally, piecing together multiple back and forth interactions, asking, showing, and telling, and using gestures, words, or a combination of both. The fifth process is decorating the house or creating symbols and using words and ideas. So the child has new abilities that allow for adorning his world with words, descriptions, opinions, and pretend play. I really like that word adorn. Yeah. This is where the child is starting to connect internal sensations, feelings, thoughts, and emotions to words. And this will all lead to the ability to understand their own behavior through top-down thinking. So this can appear like a child who's no longer tied to physical gestures to communicate, a child who can use words or symbols, technology, art, etc. to communicate ideas, a child who can now link a feeling or bodily state to an idea, and top-down processing that is emerging. The sixth process is the driveway to the world or emotional thinking and building bridges between ideas. And this is where the child starts to share their understanding of their own behaviors and motivations with others. The child can now organize their thoughts and emotions, which results in the ability to think logically and build bridges between their own ideas and those of others. So it's like a driveway leading out from the house to the outer world. And this is when a child can answer both how and WH questions like when, what, why, and where. Also being able to reflect on their own opinion and somebody else's. And this can appear as logical thought, a child who can organize and understand the difference between thoughts and actions, a child who can organize and understand the difference between their own thoughts and those of others, and a child who can form opinions and engage in debate. So that's a lot of information, but in the book, page 46 and 47, there are some really great handouts you can use as a sort of checklist or guide to determine where a specific child is in this six-step process. Okay, so I know you already kind of related this to Tara, 
But what I like about how she's laid out all these steps and, you know, using those handouts that you just referenced, it's trying to get to the bottom of exactly where the child is in their social emotional development. And it reminds me of Tara because Tara says when you're assessing, you really need to find the exact level that a kid is at and meet them there. That's where you start your treatment. If you start too high, you're not going to make progress and you could spend years doing one type of treatment. And when you're not making any progress, you're like, this worked before, this worked with another kid. Why isn't it working with this kid? And it's because you didn't start at their level. You didn't start where they are. And if you're trying to make a kid do something that they're not ready to do, then you're not going to make progress. So I guess I never thought of social emotional development in this way, in these stages where you could pinpoint exactly they're at this level. And I need to be doing treatment down here in order for them to make progress. Yeah. And, you know, keeping in mind that their social emotional level where they're at developmentally might be very different from where they're at chronologically in their age. Definitely. And I really like sometimes a metaphor like this that describes like the layering is a really helpful way to think about it because you can understand without the framing for the house, you can't decorate it right? Like without the wiring, you can't use it. (laughs) So yeah, I really, I like this description a lot. Oh, and then the driveway was just so perfect. Like such a perfect metaphor connecting your house to the other houses that that's kind of your link to the outside world. I loved it. A hundred percent. You don't want to be lonely in your house, right? (laughs) No way out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, we can use our understanding of the house of social emotional development to figure out if a behavior is top down or bottom up by understanding that the first four processes are predominantly bottom-up functioning, and then the last two, the decorating and the driveway, show the emergence of top-down processing. So the most important thing to remember is to try to figure out where a child is in real time and always attend to the earliest area of challenge, starting from the foundation. And Dr. Delahook shares a personal experience that she had where her daughter was refusing to do her homework after Dr. Delahook had returned from a multi-day conference. So instead of assuming that her daughter was intentionally misbehaving, she realized that the homework avoidance was the tip of the iceberg and that her stress and need for connection and warmth from her mom was below the waterline. So she sat with her and kind of explained, you know, she wanted to reconnect with her and she had really missed her when she was at the conference, which allowed her daughter to sort of open up about some struggles and for them to reconnect. And the polyvagal theory and also Greenspan and Wider's developmental stages form a bridge between social and emotional development and the workings of the autonomic nervous system. So if anybody like a parent, teacher or provider wants to support a child's house of development, they need to have a basic comprehension of both. So Dr. Delahook began to study the autonomic nervous system, otherwise known as the brain and body's threat detection system as the gateway to supporting behavioral challenges. And the house metaphor is kind of like the first major piece of information in this chapter, and these colored pathways are the second. So using these together will really help you to understand where the child is at. She uses a color system as a guide to inform adults of how to gauge our interactions with children so that we can encourage physiological and emotional co-regulation. The colors represent the activation of the three autonomic pathways of responses defined by the polyvagal theory. My notes say polyvagal theory. (laughs) Yum. (laughs) Polyvagal theory. In fact, I saw that when I was doing my notes and I was like, I'm going to let that stay. It's hilarious. (laughs) 
<laughs> um, the oldest pathway or the blue pathway is the primitive dorsal vagal system, which helps us to protect ourselves against threats to our life by immobilizing and shutting down. The second pathway or the red pathway is the sympathetic nervous system, which is typically known as the fight or flight response. And then the newest pathway or the green pathway is the ventral vagal system, which supports social engagement and connection once somebody is feeling safe. So when a child's on the green pathway or the ventral vagal pathway, they can communicate and play and learn. If they're firmly grounded, they'll feel safe and connected, calm and social. In the red pathway or the sympathetic pathway, the person may experience a racing heart, sweating, other signs of being activated. If the child's in this pathway, then they're adaptively mobilizing to counteract the neuroception of threat. And in the blue pathway or the dorsal vagal pathway, a person's body is responding to cues of extreme danger. So this can look like deceleration of the heart and breathing rate with a sluggish body. And the individual is in a state of energy conservation or withdrawal in order to survive. So children in this pathway are sometimes overlooked or missed because they don't typically have those overt behavioral difficulties you would see with the red pathway. But these children are vulnerable and at high risk. So we really need to pay close attention to be able to identify and help them. In order to determine which pathway a child is in, we need to look for clues by looking at characteristics of the child's eyes, face, body, and rate and rhythm of movement. And these pathways are more effective than a diagnosis or tracking behaviors because they help us to understand the adaptive meaning in each child's nervous system and where a child needs help. So it's important to remember that a child's autonomic pathway is essential because the green pathway is the one that leads to healthy social and emotional development. And that's where we want all of our kids to be. So if the child's in the red or the blue pathway, then all of our attempts to help them will be less effective because they're just too activated. There are some really great handouts on pages 51, 52, and 53 of the book that go into detail about what the eyes, body, face, voice, and rhythm or rate of movement look like. So some examples from the handouts for the green pathway would be bright and shiny eyes, looking directly at people or objects, seeming alert like they're taking in information, relaxed body, an infant that molds their body into a caregiver when held. Don't you know, haven't you ever held a baby that like arches their back away like they want it? They're just so stiff. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really good indicator that they're not in the green pathway <laughs> um, and that they can change kind of smoothly to respond to their environment depending on what's happening. Some examples for the red pathway are a wide open mouth, anger or disgust, maybe a clenched jaw, fast and impulsive movements, eyes that are looking quickly around the room, arched back, tense body position, <laughs> biting, hitting, kicking, throwing, jumping, bumping into things, screaming, crying, out of control laughter. And then some examples from the blue pathway, which is more shutting down, are glazed or glassy eyes, seeming drowsy or tired, maybe like a flat face or no affect, mouth that's turned down or sad, voice that sounds flat or is sad or no talking, slow movements, slumped or slouched body posture, and little or no exploring play or curiosity. So I love the checklist format of those handouts. I think those could be really helpful if you're doing an observation. Yeah. What I'm coming to terms with is that I've never really 
considered the blue pathway. I've never really thought about it. You know, we're also familiar with the red pathway. We know the kids that are in fight or flight because they're sensing a threat. That makes sense to us. And of course, we know the green pathway, the kids that are calm and regulated and ready to learn. Those we're so familiar with. But I'm going to talk more in the next episode about the student I worked with in the past who had, I would say, the most significant, the most severe sensory processing issues. And what I'm recognizing now is that that student was spending most of their time in the blue pathway. You know, they could easily move into red at times. It wasn't always blue. But to think of it this way, That to them, the sensory experience is so overwhelming that they are so threatened that they completely shut down because they're trying to conserve energy. They're saying, I might need this because this is it. And that's where they're spending all their time. So yeah, this has really opened my eyes because so many of the behaviors I saw in that student are now making sense because that student was really shut down most of the time. And I don't think that the way the team was responding, you know, they had a behaviorist, they had a non-public agency that was working with them. And I don't think that the intervention that they were doing was the right thing at all. I know that that child did not feel safe at school. Mm. And thinking of the blue pathway and what that means has just really brought things together for me in a way that I had never considered. Yeah, definitely. I had not thought of it. I think we encounter so many kids who are in the red pathway because like she said, those behaviors are so much more overt. They're kind of like crisis behaviors if they're hitting or kicking that need to be dealt with now. Whereas the blue pathway is just, like she said, kind of goes under the radar or maybe can just look like kids who are kind of sad or shy even. Yeah, so this child did not go under the radar because it was really easy for them to move into the red pathway. Right. There was aggression and right, right. kind of moving in and out. But yeah, I would just say that for the most part, what we saw was a complete shutdown. The flat affect, not participating in anything. They stopped speaking for nearly a year, mm. wouldn't eat anything at school. Mm. Um, So it was just a complete struggle. And now thinking about it in this way, it sort of makes me emotional to recognize how threatened that child felt, how unsafe they felt at school, that they were completely shutting down. Wow. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm really excited to learn more about the treatment, which I know is going to be in part two of the book, like chapter four and on, because she gives some great like case studies. And I'm like, well, how'd you get from point A to point B? Like I'm dying to know. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know. In the next episode, you know, obviously, we've already read ahead to chapter three. And there's so many stories of case studies. And she kind of just says, and then once they figured it out, they were able to implement a treatment that worked. And you're like, but tell us what the treatment is. What did you do? I need to know. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay, well, we'll get there. Yeah. But, you know, this is all really important information because I think too often we react to a child's behavior and just kind of decide on a response before we really understand what's going on. And it's way more important to just pause and ask ourselves if this is a top-down or a bottom-up behavior and if this is a developmental challenge, a stress response, or a conscious-slash-intentional act. So Dr. Delahook shares the story of a kindergartner named Kira. She cried often and kept to herself most of the day and avoided interactions with her peers. 
and it was determined she had a mild speech delay and some social skills deficits. So she was put into a social group at school with a speech therapist. And the speech therapist was showing flashcards to identify the emotions, but it really didn't help anything. And actually, Kira started to show more anxiety and hypervigilance about being called on in the group by the speech therapist. So it seemed to be having not even a helpful effect, but a harmful effect. And the next summer, Kira was evaluated by a developmental speech and language therapist. And this therapist assessed her color pathway and developmental processes and determined that even though Kira could use words to communicate her basic needs, her developmental processes one through four were actually still under construction, which was affecting her social communication. So the speech therapist helped Kira and her mom to develop Kira's green pathway by helping them to feel safe and have fun together. She worked on Kira and her mom having a comfortable back and forth rhythm in a play-based environment rather than teaching or requiring anything of Kira. So it was just to experience joyful interactions and have fun together, which helped Kira to exercise her weak muscles of social emotional development. And then through the use of a developmental and relationship-based model, her demeanor changed and she began to approach other kids at the park and spontaneously play with them. And her social problem-solving abilities started to catch up to her peers as well. And then once she experienced that relational safety, her social engagement behaviors emerged spontaneously. And then all of her concerning behaviors, the school refusal, the avoidance, lack of play, all resolved. So I feel like that's like a great, I love that she used an example of speech therapist. I was like, wow, you know. Yeah. In chapter three, she discusses the whole team. Yeah. The team that can work together, multidisciplinary team for this kind of a thing. But I'm like, you know what? we can really help. Like, this is relevant to us. <laughs> well, she does say like, oh, this was a really good speech therapist, but this was a bad speech therapist. <laughs> I know. I was kind of like, oh, the flashcards. Don't don't be rude about the flashcards. We've all got them. Yeah, we do. Um, but in the next chapter, we're going to look at the third area that we really need to know about in order to support our understanding of children's behavioral challenges. And that is appreciation of individual differences. Well, thank you so much, everybody, for joining us for chapter two. I hope that this is starting to increase your understanding of these foundational factors that are affecting kids and their behavior. We look forward to covering chapter three next time where we will talk about individual differences and how they affect children's behavior. See you then. Bye, Laura. Bye, Adrian. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast. It's a community. Go to our Instagram at SLP underscore book club to join the discussion and connect with us after each episode. Want even more of the SLP book club? The resources we make to support the content of the books we read are available for free on our Patreon or at the Laura G SLP Teachers Pay Teachers store. You can find links to them in the show notes. To learn more about the SLP book club, go to the slpbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at the slpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at slp underscore book club or on TikTok at the slpbookclub.